0: Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. For more information about our church family, please visit our Bradleyville Church of Christ Facebook page. We hope to see you soon. Till then, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We hope you have a good day. Uh, We're going to continue this kind of intermittent series that we're doing on the elementary principles of Christ. and We call these foundational sermons. Because we're learning to build a strong foundation in Christ. One of the problems that we have in Christianity is we don't always have a strong foundation to build on. We've been been taught certain things or we believe certain things that aren't really based in truth. And so when the winds of change come and what we've been taught doesn't line up with with God's principles. And we see that play out in the world around us. Then we, we we lose track. We get blown off course. Paul says we get tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine because we don't have a strong foundation. In Hebrews chapter 6, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 5, we saw these these ideas laid out for us about a group of people who were not spiritually strong. They didn't have a strong foundation. And the strong foundation came from the standpoint that they had stopped hearing God's Word. They had stopped listening to the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. Or in our case today, they stopped reading the Bible that's the reason why we're talking about being in the, in, the, in the Word of God on a daily basis is because if we fail to do that, then we have a potential that we're undermining our spiritual foundation. They had stopped hearing the Word of God. They were unskilled in the Word of God. That means they didn't know how to rightly divide the Word of Truth. And so when they got into a passage trying to determine what application does it have in their life, they didn't know how to do that. And they had stopped exercising their senses what does it mean to exercise? It means to work out, right? So that you're, you're able to perform when a task comes before you. And we think about exercise in relation to physical, but there is spiritual exercise that we need to perform. We need to practice making good decisions, to practice practicing righteousness, to training our mouth to say words or not to say words, train our mind to think things or to not think things, train our hands do things or to not do things. Oh, be careful little feet where you go, right? we sing that song with our kids. Why do we do that? Because we're training our kids to think about what they're going to do when they go to school, when they come home, when they interact with their, their, when they play with their, their friends out in the playground or out in the, in the backyard. And these people had failed to exercise their senses. And so Paul then transitions in chapter six and he says, okay, there's some elementary principles that could be undermined if you fail to do this, and he mentions repentance from the dead works, faith towards God, doctrines of baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment we 've covered the first three on this side, and we 're going to talk today about laying on of hands when 's the last time you thought about the doctrine or principle of laying on of hands <clears throat> when does that, where does that enter into our into our uh, collective psyche in the church, and what what 's the, what's the Bible preaching and teaching on laying on of hands What, what can we learn? about laying on of hands that makes it an elementary principle of Christ. You ever think about that? When Paul was laying out these elementary principles, when I say elementary, what what do I mean? Basic principles, right? What would make laying on of hands a basic principle of Christ? And I'll give you a key. A lot of it has to do with context. What was the context in which Paul was speaking? And who was he speaking to? And what was the time in which he was speaking? That's what we're going to see today is laying on of hands has context to it. And it has context to us today. We're going to learn that as we go through this. So let's begin by thinking about, oh, that's just my highlight of the laying on of hands. Let's think about what that phrase means. What does it mean to lay hands on? That phrase is actually used more in the Bible than what you may think. It has several different contexts in which which it's used, but simply it means to put your hands on somebody. Anybody do that? I have a I have a habit. I don't know if you call it a good habit or bad habit. I pat people on the back, right? Pat them on the arm. It's, it, there's something about contact with people that, that, that kind of builds a relationship. And there is appropriate contact and there's inappropriate contact. But when you think about laying all the hands in the scriptures, here's some basic ways in which it's used. To apprehend, to arrest, or detain. And so Mark chapter 12, and you read this in all the gospels, the Jewish leaders were always looking to lay hands on Jesus. When I say that, what do I mean? They wanted to detain him, right? They wanted to arrest Jesus. They wanted to, to hold him. And so you see that used also in the book of Acts that, the, that Peter and John that the Jewish leaders laid hold on them and they took them to prison. So that's one meaning or one use of the word lay off hands. It also means to pronounce a condemnation on them. And so when, when you go to Leviticus chapter 16 verse 21, and we talked about this a little bit on our Wednesday night class. You remember the scapegoat? In the old law, on the day of atonement, there was, a, there was a, a, two goats that were to be taken before the high priest, and a lot was to be cast. One of the goats, of the goats was going to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. That blood was going to be taken by the high priest in the whole waste of holies. He went in there one time a year. There was only one day a year when he could go in there. And he could only go in there with blood. And the, the blood of one of these goats was going to be used as the sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. You know what happened to the other goat? He got to live. But he was the scapegoat. And what they would do is, the high priest would lay his hands on the head of that goat and he would pronounce the sins of the, of, of Israel. He would place those sins on that goat and the goat was taken out in the wilderness and let go. You see that idea of laying on hands. Whenever a person was... was had committed a sin or committed a, a wrong in the community, that they were to, the elders of the city were to take that man, they were to judge him, and if he was found guilty, they would throw big rocks at him until he died. But in that description of the stoning, one of the things that it says was to happen was that the people of the city were to come and to lay their hands on him before they were to kill him. Why would they do that? It's an acknowledgement of condemnation. This man has done whatever, whatever he's done, he's been found guilty of, and we are condemning that action. And so, by, by extension, it's a, my participation in that judgment, right? So, condemnation was one thing. It also was used to confer a blessing on an individual. Genesis chapter 46 describes a scene where Isaac, in his old age, is going to confer a blessing on the, the sons of, of Joseph, uh, excuse me, Jacob. He's going to confer a blessing on the sons of Joseph. And he brings Ephraim and Manasseh before Joseph, or before, before Jacob. And you remember what Jacob does? He crosses his hands over, right? There's a story behind that. But he, but he puts his hands on those boys and he pronounces blessings upon those boys. That was a, a, a symbolic action there to show a blessing of approval and to confer that blessing. Jesus, uh, we see this happen over in Mark chapter 10 as well with Jesus. But in particular, when you see that blessing, these are the three categories that you typically see. It's um, a miracle. Luke chapter 4 describes how Jesus laid his hands on an individual to heal them. That was the method or that was the means by which Jesus healed that person. Did Jesus have to lay his hands on that person to heal them? In particular, I think this is a a, a leprous man here. No, we know that Jesus, Jesus had the power. His word had the power to heal because we know in other situations he would tell somebody, rise up and walk. He didn't have to put his hands on the person. So why did he put his hands on that person? You see the, the symbolic action, the, 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 the process there that shows people the conference of a miracle. We also read that it was the way in which miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit were conveyed upon people. And we're going to talk more about these in detail so I shouldn't be even spend as much time as I am. But the final one is a blessing of confirmation or approval that we are, by, by laying our hands on this person, it's, it's almost the, the opposite of what you see up here. It's a pronouncement of a confirmation or an approval. Now, let's let's kind of park that for just a second. I want to talk about miracles for just a second. I want us to remind ourselves of the principles of, the, of miracles from the Bible because sometimes we get off track on this. Oftentimes we heard the word, hear the word miracle associated with things That are not necessarily miraculous in terms of the Bible. What are some things that you might think of whenever you hear, well, that was a miracle, right? Well, sometimes we hear the miracle of birth. And and don't get me wrong, when a baby is born, that is a great blessing. But it's a natural process, right? It's a process that's been going on since the beginning of time. It is a process in which God is involved. But it's defined by the laws of nature and the processes of nature. But a miracle, in in view of the Scripture, is defined as something that is immediate and evident and supernatural. Now, let's think about some examples here. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. I want to show you in this one miracle the evidence of this miracle. Why it it was what it was. Mark chapter 7. Mark is eluding me for some reason. There we go. We're going to begin in verse 31. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. And then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hands on him. Catch that. They recognized that there was power in Jesus' hands. Right, now remember, Jesus didn't have to put his hands on him, but that was, that was what they saw as being a recognition of the power. And he took him aside from the multitude, and he put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. And then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that's hard for me to say, which is, be opened. What's verse 35 say? Immediately, immediately his ears were opened. And the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he, spe- and he spoke plainly. The first evidence we see of a miracle is that it's immediate. Now, it's important to remember as we get further into this, but, but a miracle was something that happened then, right? What about the fact that it was evident or obvious to all? Now, just because a miracle happens and people don't see it doesn't mean it's not a miracle. But typically, when you see miracles of the, New Test- of the Bible, they're they are recorded for us because they are evident to mankind. And that gets into the purpose, as we'll see in just a minute. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But, be, but the more he commanded, the more widely they proclaimed. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. It's evident. It's obvious. Why is that? Because this man, ten minutes ago, he couldn't hear and he couldn't speak. And you, now, you know what he's doing? He's telling the story. And when we're cheering for him, he can hear it. It was obvious to the people that this was a miracle. And the third thing we see is that it was supernatural. It was beyond nature's laws and processes. Look at verse 37. He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now somebody would say, well, that can happen today. We can take people who can't hear and we can do a cochlear implant on them. and We can make them where they can hear. Yeah, that's a natural process, right? Where were cochlear implants when Jesus was performing this miracle it didn't even exist right it wasn't even it wasn't even a, a hint in people's mind, but we understand it was a supernatural action that Jesus performed here that this man was healed that he was able to hear and he was able to speak. Miracles are those things that are immediate they're evident and they're super, and they 're supernatural, which means then that we and ourselves because we're bound by natural nature's laws. We can't perform miracles on our own. There's nothing that I'm going to do of my own power that's going to be supernatural because I am not supernatural. I am natural. I'm constrained by the natural laws of physics and, and motion and thermodynamics. And I am, I'm therefore not incapable of doing miracles on my own, which means That miracles come from God. God is supernatural and the miracles that perform are performed because he is supernatural. Now the other thing we need to remember is just because God's acts doesn't mean that everything he does is miraculous. God also works through the devices of nature. He works through the processes of nature. He works through the laws of nature and the processes of man to accomplish his will. So not everything God does is miraculous. So the conclusion here I want us to remember is that not everything that we may consider to be miraculous is actually, by Bible definition, a miracle. It's important for us to remember. Another thing we need to remember about miracles are that they, they do certain things. Sometimes we, we think about a miracle just by the results that it got. What a wonderful blessing to that man that he was able to hear and he was able to speak. But you know, the Bible teaches us that the purpose of the miracle was not simply to make the man be able to hear and be able to speak. Miracles had a purpose. And it's always important for us to remember what the purpose of the miracles were. The first thing we learn about miracles are they identify God. Think about the plagues. What was the purpose of the plagues of Egypt? It was to show that God, Jehovah Elohim, is God over everybody. Right He's got over Ra, the God the Egyptian god of the sun, he's got over Moses, the, the Egyptian god of the river, he's got over all the other gods that I can't remember their names of, who were God of the lice and the frogs and, and he was God of all those gods. It was to identify him the I am as his identity. and we see that Jesus' miracles were the same, that Jesus' miracles were to be used to identify him. John would write in John chapter 20 verse thirty he says Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written that you might believe that you might have life the purpose of Jesus miracles were not simply to heal people and to feed people and to make people bring people back from the dead but they were to testify to his identity They were to show him to be the true power of God, to be the son of God. Second thing we learn about miracles are they testify to God's power. Remember, you and I in and of ourselves have no power to perform miracles, right? So if a miracle happens at the hands of a man, it happens because that man is being invested with the supernatural power of God. So we think about the miracles of creation. Anybody in here been involved in creation? Anybody made something from nothing? Right? We've, we've, we've created things, but we start from something, right? You probably heard the story about the man who was challenging God to create, to, to demonstrate creation through through evolution. He said, "I can show you, God, that I can make something. I can make life out of non-life." God says, "Okay, go for it." He reaches down, and he scoops up some dirt out of the ground. Lightning strikes the man, strikes his hand. God says, "Get your own dirt." Right? We and ourselves don't have the ability to make something out of nothing. So creation speaks to us about the power of God. What about the Red Sea? The parting of the Red Sea. What did it do? It demonstrated God's power over nature. God took the Red Sea and he parted that so the children of Israel could cross over on dry land. They cross over. And what does God do then? He demonstrates his power over nature by releasing that water and flooding the Egyptians and they all drowned. And so we think about what God's power, what, what the miracles do in demonstrating God's power. Think about Mark 4:41. Jesus is asleep on a boat. They're, the disciples are out in the middle of the, of the Sea of Galilee. They're about to get overwhelmed, and Jesus is asleep, and they wake him up, and he says, "Peace be still, right?" He calms the storm, and they're amazed. They're exceedingly afraid, it says. And they said to one another, who, is it, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus is going to demonstrate during his, through his miracles, he's going to demonstrate his authority, his power over the wind and the sea, over disease, over demons, even over the grave when he resurrects Lazarus from the grave, right? Jesus demonstrates God's power. Through his miracles. And finally we see that miracles testify to the authority of God. This is important. They testify to the fact that God has authority. What does it mean to have authority? If you're driving down the road. A cop comes alongside of you, right? Anybody slow down when a cop? Just instinctively, right? You may not even be speeding, but you just naturally slow down. Why is that? Because cops have authority, right? They have the authority of the law. And you don't see this much in cop shows anymore, but you used to see it when I was a kid. Stop in the name of the law, right? By the authority of the law. It's not the cop that has the power. It's the law that has the power. And the law has enforced or has has enabled this man to to have authority to stop you or to to act here. And so we see in Mark chapter 2, that Jesus had authority. Now, I'm going to paraphrase this for the sake of time. You remember, there's a, Jesus is preaching in the house. And the house is so full that people can't even get in there. They want to come see him. And there's a man who's paralyzed. And his friends want him to get to Jesus. And so they, they take him up on the roof. I, I, see how you would feel about this next time we all come over to your house. If you, feel like, if you would feel good about us peeling the roof off your house to get to But that's, that's how desperate they were to get this man Jesus. They start taking the roof apart. And they let this man down. And you remember what Jesus says when he, says, when he sees not just a man's face, but he sees their faith. Remember what he says? Son, your sins are forgiven you. Blasphemy, right? The, the blasphemy alarms start going off in the heads of the Jewish leaders. Because only God has the power to forgive sin. Who is this man who claims the power of God, claims the authority of God? And Jesus says to him, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin, he turns to the man and he says, rise and walk, right? He demonstrated his authority to forgive sins by the miraculous healing of this man, so he raised him up. God's identity, God's power, God's authority are demonstrated through miracles. We need to remember that. Because sometimes we get distracted today by people who who claim to be able to perform miracles because we think about just the effect of the miracle. What's the purpose of miracles? The purpose of the miracles were to confirm God's power and authority. Here's one more thing to remember about miracles and then the purpose. When you read through the scriptures, I I, I encourage you to, to look at the pattern here, how that God uses his miracles... To confirm the word or the law that is being revealed. When God created the world, there was no such thing as gravity. There was no such thing as the first and second and third laws of thermodynamics. There was no first and second laws of motion. There was none of that stuff. So when God created the world, the creation was supernatural. But what he did in doing that was he revealed... These laws, he brought them to fruition. All the laws of wisdom, all the laws of, you know, you've heard the, the saying, gravity is not just a good idea, it's a law. Can I tell you another principle of God that he created in creation, that's, that's not just a good idea, but it's the law, honesty. God put all of these principles into place. It was the miracle that, that manifested them. But you know, God didn't have to keep creating. He didn't have to keep creating to establish the law of gravity. The laws of thermodynamics. The creation was complete. And that's why God rested on the seven days. Because he's done with his work. Go then to the, Think about the, the work of Exodus. And all that miraculous uh, work that we see taking place in Exodus. God bringing the children of Israel. The crossing of the Red Sea. The providing of manna. The giving of water. The, 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 the providence that God gave. The bringing them into the promised land. All of that. Was, was intended to manifest God's identity and to bring to the children of Israel a place where they could live and observe His law. You, you notice there that when they come into the land and they begin to live in the land, you know what happens to the miracles? You don't read about a lot of miracles in, once they've established their authority in the promised land. Once they begin to settle, those miracles tend to decline. Why? Because God's given them a law. He's given him His, his revealed word that they can live by. And so the purpose of miracles is declined because there is no real reason to continue to confirm the Word when they have it. There's no continued need for a, a revelation. But you know the children of Israel, they continually declined in their observance of God's laws. They con- continued to decline in their, in their reverence for God. And so God would see a time whenever He would need to bring about some prophets to warn them about a judgment that was coming. And what's really interesting is when you see the, the the time of the prophets begin to kick off. How does it kick off? It Kicks off with a man named Elijah, right? Elijah is a big name in the in the in the in the discussion of miracles. You think about what Elijah did, and then it comes a man after him named Elisha, who had a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. Why did they come miraculously? It was to confirm the preaching that they were making, it was to confirm and to set the tone for the prophets that were to come. It was to catch the people's attention so that they would be prepared for these prophets. And you know what happened? They still, uh, Jesus says, they stoned the prophets. They killed the prophets. They, they, weren't, they, they, they were not observant of the message that the prophets bring. And so you've come to Jesus and you look at the, at the purpose of the miracles that Jesus performed. Jesus didn't perform miracles just to feed people. He didn't just perform miracles to to bring a a centurion's daughter back to life. Those were to confirm his authority and his power and his preaching, his authority, the words that he spoke. Because it was the words that Jesus would speak that would save people, not the miracles. You know, Jesus healed people, and, and it didn't keep them healed forever. But more importantly, it didn't keep them healed spiritually. They had to confirm the message that Jesus was preaching. And it had to then give authority to that message. Even the apostles and the disciples, the, as, they, as they preached the word of God, as they were given the commission by Jesus to go out and preach the gospel. You think about examples like, uh, like Philip when he went into Samaria. Philip performed great miracles and signs and wonders among the Samarians. But you know what those people responded to? It was the message that he preached that they obeyed. And so what's really important to remember is when, when we think about the miracles that we read about in the, in the New Testament church, it's context. Paul's writing to, in Hebrews chapter 6, he's writing to an infant church. He's writing to a church that needs the miracles to confirm the truth, to reveal the truth. Uh, they needed the, 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 the miraculous work of prophecy. They needed the miraculous work of speaking in tongues. They needed the miraculous work of interpreting tongues. They needed the ability to confirm the message through the healings and the other miracles that were being performed. And so he's writing there to a, to a, a group of people who needed that revelation until the word of God would come to fruition. So let's go back then to the elementary principle of laying on of hands. What roles does this have in the early church? Now, what's interesting about this one is this is one of the only, if not the only, elementary principles that we see no direct commands associated with. We can go to, we can go to repentance from dead works, and we can see Jesus say, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, right? We can go to the doctrine of, of faith towards God, and we can see that Jesus says in John chapter 8, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. We can look at baptism, and we can see that Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. I can find no direct command from Jesus related to the laying on of hands. We see a lot of examples, though. So what can we learn from those examples? Can we learn some general principles that are associated with laying on of hands? And it goes back to what we saw before. Laying on of hands were primarily to confer a miracle, to confer a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit, or to bestow a blessing of approval or a blessing of confirmation now let's think about these individually in the time we got left. The laying on of hands to perform a miracle. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8 through 9 um, speaks about that should be 8 through 10, actually, speaks about the the, the the miraculous works of the Holy Spirit. For one to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles. And I stopped right there because he goes on to list a few more. But I want you to notice in the lists of the the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, there is a gift of healing and there is a working of miracles. So that would have been the role of the Holy Spirit in an infant church to work miracles, to heal people, to bring people back to life. And we see that was an important aspect in laying on hands. Well, how how did that happen? It's because in some situations, they laid hands on people. We were studying a few weeks ago. uh, Gabe Shipley and I were studying a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 16. And he says, I like verses 15 and 16, but tell me about 17. Open up to Mark 16. I want you to see what Jesus says would be the signs of those who would follow after him. And I want to ask you, did this happen? Did these things happen as Jesus prophesied they would happen? Verse 15 says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Jesus said that among these miraculous works that the early church would do, the believers that followed after him, one of them would be they would lay hands on people and they would recover. Can we think of examples of that? Yeah, we can go through the book of Acts and we can see where people were healed, particularly by the laying on of a person's hands. Why would that be an elementary principle then of the church? Because that's what was going on in the church. One of the aspects of laying on of hands was the fact that's how miracles were conferred. Would it be important in a time whenever miracles were an important part of the testimony of, of Revelation, that understanding that the laying on of hands was how that happened? Yeah, that's, that's important to a first century church, to understand the, the way that miracles are often conferred. What about the laying on of hands to, to um, oh, I, I skipped forward one. What we'll about the laying on of hands for the sharing of the Holy Spirit? Oh, oh, Open up to Acts chapter 8. Turn over to Acts chapter 8. And I want to show you this example here. Because remember, we're, we're looking at examples. We're not seeing any direct commands here related to this. But Acts chapter 8 is the preaching of Philip. Philip has gone to Samaria. And um, he's... Preach to the Samaritans. And they have obeyed the gospel. They've been baptized. But there's something interesting that hasn't happened. The miraculous work of the Holy Spirit has not come down on any of them. Why is that the case? Well, notice what happens here. Um, Let me back up to the page. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria... Had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had only he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that it was through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. This was something that was obvious to the people. That it was through the laying on of the apostles' hands that the miraculous gifts were imparted. You can go on over to, uh, to Ephesians or to Acts chapter 19, and you see the same example. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, comes to Ephesus. He sees some men here who uh, apparently are disciples, but they don't, they don't have any gifts. And he says, Okay, well, what were you baptized into then? First off, he asked them, Well, what about the Holy Spirit? He said, We don't even know there is a Holy Spirit. He said, Well, what were you baptized into? He said, uh, into John's baptism, and so he taught them that they need to be baptized in the authority of Jesus by the authority of Jesus Christ. And after they've been baptized, he lays his hands on them. They receive these miraculous gifts. And one of the things we see then, this principle that's taught is that it was through the laying on of the hands of the apostles that these miraculous gifts were imparted. How did Timothy get his gifts? Paul says it was through the laying on of my hands. How did anybody get miraculous gifts? It was through the laying on of the hands of the apostles. And we see no other examples in the scriptures, at least that I could find, where miraculous gifts were imparted any other way than through the laying on of hands. Now the question then becomes, what happens when the apostles die? If it's through the laying on of the apostles' hands, when the apostles die, what happens to the miraculous gifts? Well, you know, there's going to be people that are going to survive them. Timothy and Luke and these other men that are the next generation, you might say. They're going to be able to continue on. But if it's only through the laying on of the apostles' hands that the miraculous gifts are imparted, what's going to happen as they die off? Well, you're going to see the diminishing influence and the diminishing work, the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Well, what sense does that make, Duffy? Well, what's increasing as the miraculous is decreasing? I'll give you two passages that point to that. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks to the fact that in the time in which Paul was writing, the gifts of Christ, the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit was very evident. It was powerful and it was necessary. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks about this in the gifts that Jesus would give to his disciples. Turn to verse 7. But each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts, Therefore, he says, he who ascended on high, he laid captivity to and gave gifts to men. I'm going to skip verses 9 and 10 because because they're kind of um, an interjection of an idea there. But get to verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Who did? Jesus did. He gave them the ability to perform these roles in the church. Why is that? Because the church needed it. They needed this this miraculous edification because they didn't have something for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till what does that mean? That's not the that's not the tiller that you put out in your garden, right? That I means to a point, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul says there would be a time for these. Miraculous gifts to be imparted. But there would also be a time when they wouldn't be necessary anymore. When we all grow up in Christ. When we reach to the. When we're able to reach up to the fullness of the stature of Christ. And that makes me think about a little kid right. When Jacob was growing up. He was this high. And then he was this high. And then he was this high. But you know where Jacob is now? He's the full stature of Duffy Mooney. He's actually taller than me right. He's grown up. And we all. We all are called to grow up into Christ. Well, how does that happen in a time when you don't have maybe all the revelation that you might need? When you might have the full revealed word of God. But Paul said there would be a time when it would happen. Now, I want to I take you one more passage, and I want to tie these two together here. And this one is in 1 Corinthians, because, because Paul tells specifically about time when these miraculous gifts would come to a close. 1 Corinthians 13 is the chapter on love, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. It gives all the characteristics of love. Verse 8 says, love never fails. But I want you to listen to how verse 8 ends. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. What does that mean? There's going to be a time when prophecies will fail, when they'll stop, when they'll cease to be effective. Where are prophecies? They will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease The ability to speak in a language in which I had not been trained would not be necessary anymore. When would that be, Paul? Whether there's knowledge, it will vanish away. Now, don't don't take here to mean all knowledge. He's talking about miraculous knowledge. You can learn that by going up early in the chapter. But he says, there's going to be a time when the miraculous will cease because something else will replace it. But that which is perfect has come, and that which is in part will be done away with. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. What would be that thing, what would be that perfect that would come that would cause the miraculous to have to cease? Remember, God's miraculous work revealed his word. It showed his power. It confirmed his authority. What would be something that would show us, reveal His Word, demonstrate His power, and confirm His authority? It's the complete revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the Word of God. It's the New Testament that we have today. When that came into fruition, when, when that Word was revealed, the work of the Holy Spirit was done, right? Because Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and He's going to bring to remembrance all things I taught you, and He's going he's to reveal all things to you. Well, there's going to be a time when there's no more revelation necessary. 1 Peter chapter, uh, 2 Peter chapter, 1, verse 3 says that God has given us all things that pertain to life and God's. Christian, I hope you understand this. But God's given you everything you need to know right there. To know His will and to be faithful to Him. There's no need for additional revelation. There's no need for an additional stirring of the Spirit. There's no need for an additional prophecy. God's given us all that we need. And so you think then about the laying on of hands. We see that it was was to confer a miracle or to confer a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. We see that those things had a time and a place in the first century church, but they don't have a time and place today because we have the complete revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, what about the last one? What about the, the, the laying on of hands for a blessing of approval? Is that still something that the church should do today? Well, let me ask you, what were, they, what were they doing with that? Why were they doing it? And I'll just show you some, some quick examples here. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. I referenced this earlier. Some people brought their little children to Jesus because they wanted him, specifically says they wanted him to touch them. They wanted him to lay his hands on them. Why? Because they needed healing? No, because they understood that that was a sign of approval. That was a sign of blessing. That was a sign of confirmation and so the disciples said, ah, oh, Jesus is too busy, right? <laughs> You've you got his, you got his, his uh, PR folks that are trying to keep him on track, right? Jesus takes some time. He takes those little children up in his hands. He says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. Surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter. And he took them up on his arms, laid his hands on them. And bless them. I want you to notice here, there's two phrases that are different. He took them up in his arms, right? Then he laid his hands on them. Why would he do that? He's conferring a blessing. That's a sign of approval, that's a symbol of confirmation that Jesus makes here. We go on then to Acts chapter 6. We see this example of the first servants in the church. Some might call them the first deacons. The Bible doesn't call it that, but that's essentially what you see. There were servants in the church that were chosen to take care of the widows who were being neglected. These men were chosen by the church based on its specific uh, characteristics. And when they chose those men, they set them before the apostles, and they prayed for them, and they laid their hands on them. Why did they do that? Because they're demonstrating their approval. They're demonstrating the blessing of Confirmation that these are the men who are going to serve. You know, who didn't get to serve in those roles? The people didn't get their hands laid on them. Because the church could see that I've laid my hands on Philip. We put our hands on the Canon. We put our hands on Timon. We put our hands on Stephen. We've confirmed them as being the servants of the church. It's a confirmation taking place there. We go on down to Acts chapter 13, and there were faithful men who were serving in the church at Antioch. Holy Spirit says, I want you to separate Paul and Barnabas, actually Barnabas and Saul, for the work that I have for them. So they set Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul. He's not called Paul at that point in time. I'm sorry. They set those guys aside to get ready to go for the work. And then they said they fasted and they prayed and they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. Why? Because we want you to know that you have been, you have been, you're being supported by, you're being confirmed by, you're being approved by the church. Is that something we should do today? Do we have an example today that we would do that? I'd say yes. What would, be, what would be situations in which we'd do that? Now, here's one more. I forgot to put this one up. I forgot to talk about this one. But Paul warns Timothy to be careful about this. He says, don't put your hands on people. Don't lay your hands on anyone hastily. Well, when would be a time when we might do that? If we were going to show confirmation to somebody, if we were going to if we were going to send, let's say, I'm, I'm just going to, we're going to send Don off. He's going to go off down to let hell, and he's going to preach, we're going to send him down there to preach, right? We want to make sure that we're picking the right guy for the job, right? Don shaking his head, no, no, right? And Paul makes the point. He says, be careful how you do this. Don't lay your hands on anyone hastily. Don't be a partaker in other people's sins. You know what could happen? We might approve somebody. We might show by our laying off hands that we approve of this person, and he's got a truckload of sin. He's pulling along behind him. Church doesn't need to be associated with that. Matter of fact, the church needs to be working on this to try to help this guy resolve the situation. So Paul says, be careful about what, how you use this confirmation. Be careful how you use this symbol of, of approval and blessing. Because it might make you appear to be confirming or showing approval for a lifestyle of somebody who's walking in sin. Do we do that Sometimes. Maybe not through the laying on of our hands, but maybe we do by turning a blind eye to sin in the church. We've got to be careful about how we use this. This is something that we can't just we can't just blindly say, you know what, the church supports this this work and we're gonna we're gonna put our all of our effort behind this person and find out that they've got issues, and then once you send them out and the wheels fall off, now that comes back on the church, right? So whether we're confirming elders or deacons, I'll just tell you this is one of my Great long-term goals. I say long-term because I understand practically that sometimes it takes a long time to grow elders. I'm excited for the day when we can lay our hands on faithful men who meet the qualifications the Holy Spirit has given us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. That our elders that have the authority to shepherd this church, I look forward to the day when we can lay our hands on those men and we can show by God's authority we can say we are approving you to be the shepherds the pastors of this church and then not very long after that I don't know how long it will take but that we can lay our hands on men who meet the qualifications of deacons and we say you've been given the authority by the Holy Spirit and we are approving you to be the servants of this church think about what that would look like you know what that means that means we're a mature church we're a church that have men and women who are, are heart and soul serving God, that they're striving not to be super-Christians. You look at those lists of elders and deacons, that's not a description of super-Christians. That's a description of a Christian, but they have a heart to serve. That's the day I look forward to. That's the time whenever we can enjoy the blessings of laying on of hands in this congregation. So the elementary principle of Christ of laying on hands had a a deep meaning to that first century church because it was a conveyance of a miracle. It was a conference of a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. We see from the scriptures that that time has passed, but it still brings a symbolic importance to the church because when we lay our hands on folks, and I'm talking about not shaking hands when we're going out the door or patting people on the back when they come in, but when we, as the body of Christ, when we confer blessing upon somebody who's gonna represent us either in a leadership role in a servant's role, or we're sending them out to do work for the church. That's important. That's a great blessing that we have the opportunity to be a part of. That's why we need to understand it as an elementary principle of Christ. Kind of fits in a little differently, you might say, than what we've seen in in repentance and faith and baptism. But it was something that was essential to the first century church because that was their growth. That was how they were edified, edified, was through those miracles, and it's how we're edified today because it gives us encouragement to grow, to be in God's word, to not take it for granted. You know, I can't help but think that that first century church would have had half of this if they just had two of the Gospels, and the Book of Romans, and maybe one of the Corinthian letters. Think about how happy they would have been. Think about how blessed they would have felt. What a great opportunity we had to have the whole, complete, revealed Word of God. I hope we don't ever take it for granted. If you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that's one of the purposes of His miracles, was to demonstrate to you that He died on the cross for your sins. Do you believe that with all your heart? I noted this earlier, but in John chapter 8, Jesus said, um, Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. There's consequences to not believing in Jesus. If you do believe in Jesus, have you obeyed the gospel? Jesus told his disciples to go and preach the gospel to every creature. And he gave some, some requirements of obedience. He said, you've got to believe in it. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Have you done that? If you haven't obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to do that today. Welcome to the Bradleyville Church of Christ podcast. We are a family of believers striving to be the first century church in the 21st century. We are located at 25861 State Highway seventy six in Bradleyville, Missouri. Please join us for Bible study Sunday mornings at nine thirty a m with worship to follow at ten thirty a m. Wednesday night Bible study is at seven p m. Now enjoy our lesson.